In the first chapter of Colossians, as we have noted, the Apostle Paul is making it clear to the saints of God that he prays for them on a regular basis. He doesn't cease to pray for them. He begins in verse 3 of chapter 1 by telling them this, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He continues this until when we come down to verse number 12, he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You'll notice in both of those verses, 3 and 12, the mention of giving thanks. Thanksgiving is an essential part of prayer. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy concerning prayer, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I quote from verse number 1, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, or all types of men. So here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul strikes this note of thanksgiving, but he's thankful for something in particular. He's thanking God particularly for the person and work of Christ. And that's very significant, because this epistle really centers upon this truth. And that is, in all things, Christ is to have the preeminence. Not just prominence, but the preeminence. That he might be above all. You'll see that when Paul is thanking the Lord, he speaks about what the Lord has done for his people. And when you read this carefully from verse 12 to verse 14, there are really four things that Paul emphasizes. He says in verse 12, which hath made us meet. It really means fit or prepared to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. In association with that, He has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. In whom, He says, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And if you were to split those two, that would be five things that He thanks the Lord for. But you might want to put those two together. Redemption, the payment of a price for the release of slaves from sin, even the forgiveness of sins. And the word forgiveness in the Greek language here has the thought of sending away. So the Lord has actually sent away our sins. What a wonderful thought that is. This is what Paul gives thanks for. He gives thanks for these several things that the Lord has done for his people. But then you'll notice in connection with that, that he speaks about who the Savior is. And so you have the work of Christ, and then you have emphasis on the person of Christ. Who is the Savior? Well, in the verses that follow, he emphasizes that the one who died on Calvary's cross 
was indeed the great creator. God manifest in flesh. We see this in verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16. By him were all things created. This is emphasizing who Christ is. He is the great creator. He is deity. Now this is a doctrinal passage in Colossians, obviously. There's vital teaching here for God's people in which the apostle would have us to focus upon Christ, who he is, and his great work for us as his people. But there is an intermingling and there is an overlapping of the two themes here, particularly from verse 12 down to verse 22. He starts out talking, as we've mentioned, about the work of Christ, what he has done. Then he speaks about the person of Christ, who he is. But then he goes back again to talk about the work of Christ once more. And frankly, when we're thinking about the Lord Jesus, we cannot divorce his person from his work. It is the person of Christ that gives value to his work. It's because of who he is and what he is that there is such value, such infinite value in his work. Remember when Paul wrote to the the Corinthians, we're studying what he said to the Colossians, but when he wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about the kind of ministry that he was going to have among them. He was determined that he was going to be a man of one Subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save, and that word means except, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's the person, Jesus Christ, and there's the passion, the work, Him crucified. This was Paul's great focus in his ministry. The person and the work of Christ. And the value of his work, I say, is to be measured by the value of his person. So let us think about the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. This is the subject in chapter 1, but it's also the subject that appears again in chapter 2. When we were giving you an outline of Colossians, we said that the first two chapters were basically doctrine. The the second two chapters, three and four, are basically duty. So the doctrine is really the doctrine of Christ and the subject appears once more in that second chapter. But chapter one, could I say, is really a summary of the teaching of the entire New Testament. This is what it's about. Here we see the Christ of the Christian. A description of the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I said that the first 11 verses of Colossians were to be summarized as a word of encouragement to the saints. Paul's praise of them and his prayers for them. But we're now looking at that second section, verses 12 through 29. And here we have a witness 
in exaltation of the Savior. And what is Paul's purpose here? I would suggest that from verse 15 to verse 19 in particular, it is the purpose of the apostle to declare the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now I have no doubt in my mind who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is God. I have no hesitation in saying that. Someone said to a preacher one time, How do you know that Jesus Christ is really God? And without hesitation, the preacher said, I know that Jesus Christ is God, because what Jesus Christ did for me, only God could do for me. He is God. He is the deity that we worship. It has been said of many religions, many different faith groups, that their founders and their leaders, while representing those religions, are not, in fact, indispensable to them. What that means is that the teachings can stand on their own without the personalities. And you just check that out with all the cults and the false religions. Yes, they are pretty much tied to the individuals, to the characters who are from their history. But sometimes they like to deny that they had any association with them because it's not convenient to do so. But if you study the doctrines and the teachings, you'll find that they are the doctrines and the teachings of those men, or those women, as the case may be. Such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, falsely so-called. They're not anything to do with Jehovah, and they're certainly not witnesses of His. The Watchtower Society. They are very much associated with Charles Taze Russell and Judge Rutherford. Both of them heretics. And their teachings are to be found all the way through the writings of the Jehovah's so-called witnesses. But the doctrines of the JWs, if I could put it that way, the doctrines of these false witnesses can stand on their own without those personalities. They don't need those names of Russell and Rutherford and so on. But not Christianity. Someone says, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian, because the word Christian means Christ's one. Christianity has the name of the Savior within it. It's Christianity. Christianity is Christ. It's not just the doctrines that he taught. It's not just the teachings that he brought forth. Christianity is Christ. His person and his work. This is the rock on which the Christian faith is grounded. On Christ, salvation rests secure. The rock of ages shall endure. We started out the service tonight by singing that. He is our foundation. Therefore, who Christ is, is of the most vital importance. If we get this wrong, then we're going to go wrong everywhere else. Now, the Lord is identified in five distinct ways by the Apostle here in Colossians chapter 1. We're not going to get to all of these tonight. And I don't want to rush it. I want us to take our time. And I want to look at these in turn as the Lord will help us. Who is Jesus Christ? That's the question. 
What think ye of Christ? As we sang in that other hymn. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. So who is He? Who is Christ? Look with me at Colossians 1 verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, that's obviously a reference to Satan, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now I must confess I love the marginal rendering of this here. Because if you have in your authorized version that middle margin with the alternate rendering, you'll see that the Greek here may bear the translation, the son of his love. What a beautiful title that is. His dear son. Remember what the Bible tells us about Abraham and Isaac. Oh, how that old man loved that young man. The son of promise. The child of his old age. Oh, how much Abraham loved Isaac. He's referred to in Hebrews 11 as his only begotten. Oh, how the father loves Christ. He's the son of his love. He is his dearly beloved son. Just think about that. Christ is the Son whom God loves. We see a description in Matthew 3 at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ that really comes to the fore at this point. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is not the only place where God said this. He said it also in His transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. Listen to what He has to say. Matthew 17 verse 5. Here's the voice out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. The son of his love. We discover in John chapter 3. And in verse 35. The father loveth the son. And hath given all things into his hand. The father loveth the son. The love of God is perfect. The love of God is limitless. The love of God is so deep. It's so wide. It's so broad. It cannot be defined. There is no limit to the love of God. And there's no limit to the love that the Father has for the Son. The Son whom He loves is Himself, the perfect representation of the Father's love to us and for us. Consider 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. 
He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. He reveals the Father's love to us. And as believers, we ought to reflect often and deeply upon this truth. That the Father loves us even as He loves His own dear Son. And the devil's going to deny that to you. Your own flesh is going to tell you that it's not true. But I'm here to tell you that the Word of God reveals it. Look with me at this simple scripture, John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. John 17, verse 23. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, now notice this, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Hast loved them, that's believers, all Christians, as thou hast loved me. Now just let that sink into your heart. God loves me the way he loves his own dear son. So when you read this, the son of his love, you can include yourself. Because as he loves him, so he loves us. And by the way, that continues on into John seventeen twenty four. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovedest me before the foundation of the world. And just as it is true that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, He loved us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him. When? Before the foundation of the world. An eternal love that the Lord has for us. You see, we are loved in and by and through the Son. He's the Son of His love. He's His dear Son. And as John wrote in that epistle, 1 John 3 verse 1, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The great Handley Mule said that this prayer of Paul in Colossians 1 leads majestically into one of the greatest Christological passages in the New Testament. He said this, and I quote, The prayer has no formula of conclusion, no ascription and no amen. It closes by rising without a break into the utterance of a wonderful credo, a worshipping and enraptured confession of the glory of the Christ of God, whose person has filled the last phrases of the prayer. So closely 
Is this introductory passage woven? So continuous is the strain of sweet music that it is difficult to make a lawful pause even here. It's a continual ascription of praise. A writer by the name of Arthur Way believed that this was one of the love songs that the early Christians sang at their festive gatherings. And this is how he set it forth, almost as a free translation. Listen to this. He hath rescued us from the tyranny of darkness. This is Colossians 1.13. And hath transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have our ransoming, the remission of our sins. And He is the image of God, the unseen God. Firstborn before all created things is He. For in Him were all things created, things in the heavens and on the earth, be they thrones, be they lordships, be they dominations, be they powers. Yea, all things through him and for him were created, and before all is he, the I am. And in him are all things knit into one whole, who, he who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, for in him was it God's pleasure that all his plenitude should dwell. And through him was God pleased to reconcile to himself the universe. Yes, through him, the universe of earth, the universe of heaven, when he sealed their peace by the blood shed on Jesus' cross. And you'll see that in this song, we have the work of Christ, and then we have the person of Christ. And that song of adoration comes as a climax to Paul's prayer and then as a prelude to the teaching that follows it. Someone said there's no break in the sequence of thought. One truth suggests another. Words pour out of the apostle like some mountain torrent. In verse 12, Paul has revealed that we've been qualified. That's what he means by made meat. You see that? Which hath made us meet to be partakers. What does that mean? It means he has made us fit. Or he has qualified us. Or made us competent to share the lot or the portion of the inheritance of the saints in light. And then in verses 13 and 14, he goes on to show who the persons are who are qualified. And he uses four words basically to explain what God has done for these dear ones. He has delivered them, He's translated them, He's redeemed them, He's forgiven them. They've been rescued from the power of darkness, the authority of darkness. They've been translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You know, it's interesting to look at that word in verse 13 in the Greek language, hath translated us. You've heard of people in the past who have been repatriated from one country to another. The Germans did it during the war when they forcibly moved people from one country to another. That's the word. It could also be translated transferred or transported. It really refers to the removal of a population from one country to another. Now think about that. That's what the Lord has done for you and for all believers. He has transported us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. We've been moved by His mercy and grace. 
We're no longer part of that dark kingdom. We're translated into the kingdom of the son of his love. Therefore we've been given a change of status, a change of environment, a change of masters, and a change of outlook. What a glorious thing this is. We're no longer slaves of Satan. We were. We were servants to sin, but we're now subjects of the kingdom of God's Son. Many years ago, some Danish missionaries in India asked their educated converts there to translate a catechism in which the Christian's inheritance in Christ was set forth. And one of the native translators almost protested at the boldness and the incredibility of the words and said, It is too much. Let me rather render it this way. They shall be permitted to kiss his feet. Beatrice Bixler wrote these words. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but Jesus left heaven for me. The word became flesh and he died as my savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but in the beloved I stand. Now I'm an heir with my wonderful savior, and all things are mine at his hand. I am not worthy the least of his favor, but he is preparing a place where I shall dwell with my glorified Savior forever to look on his face. I am not worthy. This dull tongue repeats it. I am not worthy. This heart gladly beats it. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy. What love and what grace. The person of Christ then, he is, as described here by Paul, the son of his love. He's his dear son and he gave him up for us. But as well as that, he is the image of the invisible God. We're probably not going to get any further than this one. But this is a great place, as the preacher said, to camp out for a while. Look at verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now, let me emphasize that the word image here does not mean merely the outward form of something. This is important. There are two words in the New Testament in the original Greek translated image. One word does simply mean the outward form, but this word here in Colossians has a different meaning. When it says the image of the invisible God, it means the same through and through. Really it means that Christ was the same as the invisible God in the very essence of his being. He is like God, but not in the sense of a statue or a photograph. 
Not that many people saw the Lord Jesus in the flesh and didn't recognize him as God, but the Lord Jesus is essentially God to the core, if I could put it that way. And everything you find out about the Lord Jesus, you're finding out about the eternal God. Remember what Jesus said to Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. So, he's not merely talking here about his appearance. But rather what Jesus said was said by God. His words were God's words. What he thought was what God thought. What he did was what God did. Let us not listen to these people who want to divide Christ from God. What he did was what God did. And that, friends, cannot be said of any other man. If you go to Richmond, Virginia, now I've been there, but I haven't actually seen this. So I'm taking this man's word for it. He said, in Richmond, Virginia, there is a statue of George Washington that is exactly like him. You know why? Because every member of Washington's body was measured. And that statue is exactly the same. Same height, same length of fingers, all of that. The length of his fingers, the size of his mouth, the size of his ears, the length of his nose. Everything about that statue is exactly like George Washington. But it isn't George Washington in any sense. It's his image. It's his likeness. But this writer who had been there and saw the statue, he said, somehow, as I looked at it, I couldn't get any idea of George Washington. Because that statue can't speak like George Washington. That statue couldn't lead an army, as Washington did. That, that statue can't deliver a nation like George Washington did. It can't work. It can't think as Washington did. But Christ is the image of God in everything that he thought and did and said. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when you see Jesus, you're looking at God. Let the cult say what they will. They're liars. They're liars. When they come two by two or whatever to your door, wherever it is that you meet them, And you ask them, is Jesus Christ God? They'll say, no, He's not. He's the Son of God. You'll say, you're a liar. Because my Bible teaches me that He is the image of the invisible God. He's not just His likeness. But He's the same through and through. That's the Greek word. He's the same through and through. When you're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, you're looking at God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says the following. In whom the God of this world, small g, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, mark it, who is the image of God should shine unto them. That word, icon, that's a familiar word, isn't it? That's the word in Greek. In English you would write it E-I-K-O-N. Icon. 
It means a precise copy and exact reproduction. See, the Lord Jesus is the revelation of God. And he said it in those words that I referred to just a few minutes ago. In John chapter 14 and verse 9, when Philip had said, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us, that'll do us, Lord, if you show us the Father. Jesus said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? In other words, Philip, look at me. You're looking at God. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The identical thought, the exact expression of God, the image. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me emphasize it again. All that God is, Christ is. That's why we worship Him. That's why we worship Him. Jesus Himself said it, didn't He? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. So if Jesus Christ is not God, why would you worship Him? Worship of anything else and anyone else is forbidden, except the worship of God. Who being the brightness of His glory, Hebrews 1.3, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. The express image of His person. C.J. Rolls wrote, Image of the Father, true to likeness He, semblance of Jehovah evermore to be. Holy one in purpose, one in mind and will, Son of God, most truly ever faithful still. Friendly in thy mercy, fervent in thy love, Christly in thy beauty, so like God above. Fragrant are thy footprints, boundless in thy care, altogether glorious, worshipfully fair, higher than the holy. Mightier than the strong, greater in thy glory than the heavenly throng, richer than the wealthy, saintlier than the wise, fairer in thy beauty than the azure skies, brighter than the lofty, lovelier than the light, nobler than the faithful clad in raiment white, sweeter than the honey is thy precious name, deeper in its mystery than Shekinah's flame, meekest in thy service, loftiest in thy might, kingliest in thy patience, champion for the right, grandest in thy merit, foremost in thy claim, Jesus ever worthy, glory to thy name. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful poem of praise to our Savior. Christ is the perfect image. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. There's a verse that some misunderstand terribly. 
And I'm referring to those cults who have false teaching on the, on the text. In Philippians 2 verse 6, the Bible says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The thought there is that he did not view deity as something to be grasped after. You know why? He didn't need to grasp for deity. Because he is deity. He is God. And again, when I look at Hebrews 1.3, the term express image is actually the imprint left by a seal or a dye on wax. I'm sure you're familiar with how a notary public puts a seal on a document. In the old days, they used to put melted wax on a document and then they would put the seal of the person, whether it be the emperor or whatever, into that wax. And then once it hardened, the seal was there with his image upon it. Jesus Christ exactly mirrors God, for in very essence he is God. He is the manifestation of that which is hidden. See, you and I can't see God. That's why he's referred to as the invisible God. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of the unseen Father. You and I are not able, because we're finite to look upon that which is infinite. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 16, the scripture tells us of God, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man, whom no man hath seen nor can see. So somebody that tells you, I've seen God, you tell him you ate too much cheese at night. You've not seen God. He's the invisible God. But yet by faith, just like it says of Moses, we may see him who is invisible. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith he, that's Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw him by faith. And in John 1 verse 18 finally, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. He is the revelation of the unseen Father. See, Paul was dealing with heretics known as Gnostics. And the Gnostics had this teaching that angels were emanations of God, and they included Jesus in that. They taught that God was far removed and could not be known. And Paul refuted those false ideas by setting forth a solid and clear Christology. Christ is God. You want to come to know God? You come to know Christ. What a wonderful thing this is. That the one who is and was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. That he might redeem us. That he might ransom us from the power of sin. That he might translate us into the kingdom 
of the Son of his love, and that he might grant to us the forgiveness of sins by the riches of his grace. What a tremendous thing it is for us to realize that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He has committed to us the gospel of reconciliation. And what is that gospel? It is simply, be ye reconciled to God. We have been, as believers, reconciled to God by the death of his Son, the very Son of his love. We rejoice in that tonight. And may the Lord cause us to think much upon it, to the benefit and blessing of our souls.